You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Steven Spielberg presents Back to the Future, a Robert Zemeckis film. Marty leads an ordinary life. No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Yeah, well, history is going to change. And 1985 is not his year. But Dr. Brown is about to change all that. Are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? He's sending Marty 30 years back in time. It works! It's a flying saucer from outer space! Now, he's trapped in the past. This has got to be a dream. About to meet... Chocolate. ...his future father. He's a peeping Tom. Wow! And he's making an impression on his mother. He's an absolute dream. And he can sleep in my room. Ah. Any of you do could have serious repercussions on future events. Ah! Now, he's got to make his mother and father fall in love. For crying out loud, I haven't even been born yet. And only Dr. Brown... Can help him get back to the future. Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Precisely. Michael J. Fox. Whoa, this is heavy. Christopher Lloyd. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Back to the future. Hi everybody and welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone and today we're going to go a little bit back in time if you don't know what that means. We're going to be exploring Back to the Future. Recently I read a book on the making of Back to the Future. Not only the first film but the second and the third and the ride and the animated show. You know it's a pretty thorough book and gives us an excuse to really dig into that entire franchise, you know, the making of and all these little tidbits that, you know, were floating out there in the internet and in books and in making of videos and documentaries and trying to, you know, unravel that whole thing about, you know, the Eric Stoltz deleted scenes, you know, the original Marty McFly. And this book that I recently read, you know, was a great, great view into that entire situation, you know, when it comes to uh, making movies and also the fact that, you know, you for the first time in a very long time, they shot two sequels back to back. That's another great thing that Back to the Future was so innovative at doing. Then we're going to take a second look at, or maybe third look at, the visitors. And this time around, we're going to look at a certain toy, a doll, a large size action figure that was put out in the 80s that I recently reacquired that I absolutely love. And we're going to dip into Star Wars comic book movie adaptations. Once again, I know I've done these in the past, but hey, there's a new one. There's a new version of the movie adaptations for Star Wars, the whole trilogy, and even some of the current films, actually. This time around, 
by Disney. So we'll take a peek in those pages to see how they differ from the more traditional marble dark horse versions that were out there already. So let us begin with Back to the Future. Plato, Mirada, <laughs> you must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A, a reader? A reader. A reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. Today we're going to review a book that I just finished recently reading called Back to the Future, The Ultimate Visual History, written by Michael Clastorin and Randall Adamanuik. Even though it's called The Ultimate Visual History, and you know I'm used to visual dictionaries, if you will, from all the Star Wars books that I've been buying, which basically feature props and costumes and all kinds of visually related things having to do with the Star Wars films, this is a little different. This is more of a making of type of book. It covers all three films and what came after the three films, meaning the Universal theme park ride and the animated show that briefly followed. And I guess what makes it a little different also, the you know, the visual part of the history of the book is that the book is a little bit like one of those vault type books. And by that I mean many years ago, Stephen Sansweet through Star Wars put out the Star Wars Vault, which is a new kind of format for books that as far as I was concerned, you know, I hadn't seen these before, which is the, you know, the coffee-sized table book. And believe me, this was huge. It was a gigantic coffee-sized book where when you turn pages and whatever they happen to be talking about, you see reproductions of certain, you know, papery type of materials, whether it's letters, stickers, posters, pictures, any kind of weird, you know, paper-made products that could fit into a book. Obviously, you can't have a paper cup fit into a book, but anything that's flat that could be recreated would be done for, you know, for these books. Well, this book takes a little bit of that into effect. As you're reading the story of how things were made and how the movie was put together, there are certain pages that have little things like that. They have little lenticular cards of the picture of Marty and his family fading away. You could see that lenticular effect of the fade away effect. You have certain posters, certain letters, reproductions of the, some of the written letters, you know, warning Doc Brown of what's about to happen. So I wouldn't necessarily call it a vault book because vault books usually have way, way more of those things. But Sprinkled in this book, you do have a few little, you know, tidbit here in the vault manner. You even have in the back a poster of the Jaws 19. This time it's really, really personal, which was the goof uh, on Back to the Future 2 of the movie that was being uh, uh, played in the movie theater in the future. Well, the main things about the book, and yeah, it's good because they go through all three phases of the movie as being made. You know, you do have the background of Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale partnering up, you know, for writing and producing and directing, especially from the Zemeckis side, the directing side, collaborating on such films as Used Cars and I Want to Hold Your Hand. And that's how they kind of begun their relationship in a way, you know, from school all the way through, you know, getting involved with Spielberg, Spielberg backing up some of their films. He was a fan of Zemeckis' student films and acted as executive producer in some of these other films. So these guys had a connection, if you will, and they were able to use the, that connection, you know, to get these other films made. However, even though those films were liked, 
you know, by some people, especially Spielberg, the films were not very successful. So when time came around, you know, when they had a time travel, possible time travel story to pitch, they didn't want to bring Spielberg back as a third you know, way of getting this film made. They kind of wanted to save that, you know, for the future. No pun intended. But instead, they did Romancing the Stone. And by doing Romancing the Stone, uh, you know, they were able to put together a movie that was well-liked and financially successful. So at this point, they decided, all right, you know, we do have our own cred now. Let's bring it forward. Because if they were to put out a third film, that's what they were afraid of the most. If they were to put out a third film, with Spielberg as their executive producer, that would kind of kill their careers because it would be the third time around that they get the Spielberg backing and that they financially flop, you know, with a movie. So being able to kind of do it on their own in a way, you know, to being able to approach the studio and say, all right, the studio now wants to hear from them, even with or without Spielberg's, you know, backing, but they did bring Spielberg at this point because they didn't want him to miss out on it because of the fact that they they were pretty sure they had something really special in their hands, and so did Spielberg. So the initial pitch, you know, to Universal had the script in many different ways, and the script didn't automatically give them the complete green light. The script had to go through a number of revisions. In the movie, we're used to Marty being just a friend of Doc Brown, and he kind of goes in there to kind of use his music and his speakers and all his electronics. But in the original script, uh, Marty was uh, helping <laughs> Doc Brown run a video piracy business out of his uh, lab, basically. That's how he would make his money, you know, to fund his experiments. Well, that's something that once the revisions of the script kept coming through, that's one of the things the studio at one point said, you know, you can't have, the, you know, we cannot be supporting video piracy. <laughs> and at the same time, the studio would complain about video piracy. So they couldn't do that. So they got rid of that. The end of Back to the Future, the, the third act, if you will, you know, we know in order to him to get back to the present, really, not back to the future, but it is back to the future from the 50s point of view. Here we go. We're going to start to fall into one of these uh, paradox uh, scenario things. In the movie, it's the clock tower. They use the electricity from the lightning to power the car to be able to get enough speed to blah, blah, blah. Well, in the original script, they were going to, I think, visit an army nuclear facility. And because they knew of a certain time where a nuclear explosion was going to take place, a test, Somehow, Marty was going to get inside of a refrigerator and being able to be nuked and protected inside the fridge by the lead lining, so that would be enough power to have him go back. At this point, we don't have a DeLorean as the time travel uh, device. It, the device is a completely different type of thing that doesn't necessarily travel in a car. It has to is a machine that has to be brought back and forth to places. But for this original script, they had that idea. Now, it's funny when you think about that idea because that is one of the ideas that was in the original script that Spielberg liked. And if you think about it, that idea was eventually dropped. But if you remember Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, there is a sequence where Indy hides inside a refrigerator to avoid a nuclear blast. And he gets thrown, catapulted <laughs> to safety inside a refrigerator. It's funny how these ideas kind of stay and work their ways into other films. Doc Brown, in the movie we are we're aware of, has a dog named Einstein as his little pet. In the original script, he had a monkey, a chimpanzee. And the missing element that he needed for his formula to work, for his experiment to work, came about as a result of his chimp <laughs> accidentally knocking Coca-Cola 
into this experiment and making the, I guess, the Coca-Cola formula, making his experiment work. Again, this is something that was changed. The chimp was replaced by a, a dog. There was some kind of an exchange with a universal executive saying something to the effect that, you know, movies with chimps don't make any money. It was a silly little comment that eventually they had to go along with. But the other problem was Coca-Cola. Universal ended up being the studio that funded Back to the Future eventually. But one of the conditions in doing the film was that you cannot use Coca-Cola as a prop because uh, Coca-Cola owned Columbia Studios, a competitor. So they had to drop the Coca-Cola thing as it being the secret ingredient. And Tanner, Biff, the bad guy in the original script was a cop, a bad cop. So that's something also that they changed. They didn't want to make him a cop. They just they just made him, you know, in the present, he's McFly's boss. And in the past, he's just uh, somebody who's harassing McFly's dad. Uh, so there were a lot of, you know, script changes. The, the script changed, uh, I think they went to four different drafts, I believe. And I'm sure they make changes as they went along, you know, while shooting. But you had at least four different uh, versions of that script. Now, as the script is being developed, they get to a point where they're like, okay, well, let's do it. And Universal wouldn't play ball. They, they didn't, they, they backed out. So they shopped the script around some more. Uh, they were told, you know, bring it to Disney. According to the book, they have 40 different rejections from different studios, including Disney that, because people were thinking it's too Disney-ish. It's too lighthearted. And when they brought it to Disney, uh, Disney had a problem because of the, implied incestuous relationship you know when marty goes back in time and his mother's hitting on him not knowing that's his son obviously but it's a comedic part of the film that's what disney seemed to focus on it was like oh my god we can't put our name next to something like that <laughs> so that's kind of funny now at a certain point they do uh in the script they do decide okay by the time they're ready to shoot and they have the script pretty much like what we eventually seen, uh, you know, they, they were trying to cut costs and they're trying to generate money. And by generating money, you can have product placements, which is something that's been done for a long time. And one of the offers that was made was if they could replace the DeLorean instead with a Mustang. And they were offered $75,000 to do that. And they turned it down because they felt that the DeLorean was the perfect car. And it was. It was it's an iconic car now for that movie. Now, they built approximately three different DeLoreans for the film. And one of the guys that participated in the construction and the augmentation of the car is a guy who used to work for Universal at their Knight Rider show, the television show. So he kind of had a background on how to adapt cars to make them futuristic, if you will. Now, at a certain point, when they're all ready to go, they were told that they needed to shave $5 million off the budget. So that is how the clock tower finale, uh, you know, lightning hitting the clock tower came about. They figured out that the whole nuclear explosion third act was going to be way too expensive to shoot. And that's one way of shaving $5 million bucks off the budget. So that's where we get the new finale. Now, one of the most controversial things about this film internally controversial, that is, is the fact that Michael J. Fox was not the original actor to play Marty McFly. What happened was, Marty was, by the director and the, you know, Bob Gale and, and Zemeckis, they both wanted Michael J. Fox. Out of all the different people they were looking at, he was the, at the time, the perfect, to them, the perfect person to play this role. But he was not available. They were in the midst of family ties. The show was a huge hit and he was a very hot commodity and they could not get him, you know, off the show enough to be able to do that because they were right in the, the, the show and the movie would probably be shooting around the same time. So it was impossible to, you know, get him out of the show into the movie. So there were other 
actors they interviewed, they interviewed tons and they auditioned tons of actors, but the, the second runner up for them uh, was probably C. Thomas Howell. And we kind of knew him at the time from a very brief role he had on E.T. And he had a pretty big role in The Outsiders. So to them, he was probably the next possibly most qualified actor. Another actor that was being thrown around, his name was being thrown around, was Eric Stoltz, who, while he had some kind of light teenagery films behind him, his big, big hit was Mask, which he was wearing a ton of makeup, and it was a very serious movie. And that is the actor that the studio... Specifically, the person they were dealing with, Scheinberg, the studio exec, wanted. He was also the big connection with Spielberg. So, in a way, he was the guy that kind of can get him the movie made, but he also had his own demands. You know, it was, it was typical, you know, political studio situations where, you know, you have to give in to certain things to get other things accomplished. And when it came time to decide what actor to get, it was pretty clear, you know, that Zemeckis and Gale were somewhat strong-armed into selecting Eric Stoltz. Like I said before, the studio exec, Scheinberg, was convinced that he was going to be the biggest actor to come along and this was going to be a perfect vehicle for him. But from the start, they had problems with him. First of all, it wasn't their first choice. Second of all, he came from a very uh, traditional, uh, well-known acting school method called the method. He's a method actor. And he insisted on everybody that would address him by the name of his character, Marty. So he was constantly in character. And he would constantly be questioning, apparently, the director's directions and the motivations for the character. And he took appeared to have taken a more serious approach and less of a lighthearted approach. It wasn't that he was a bad actor. It was that he was the wrong actor for this particular scenario. With that said, he wasn't the only actor that they had problems with. Uh, Crispin Glover, who plays Marty's dad, George McFly, he, again, he also was a very apparently difficult actor to work with. He had his own ideas of what his character would be like, and at what point he had his own haircut before shooting a scene because he felt that his character would have different hair, which drove the, you know, the production people crazy because they have one idea and now he's doing something else that cannot be corrected easily. So they kind of had to work around him. They had a lot of problems with being behind schedule. From the beginning, they were they fell behind schedule right away because of a lot of technical issues and actor issues. A lot of actors would show up late <laughs> to their set. So things would get, you know, backed up a little bit more. There were a lot of, like I mentioned earlier with Eric Stoltz, a lot of, of what you would consider to be challenges to the director. Wanting to play uh, scenes a different way. And same thing with Crispin Glover. He would want to play things a different way. And one of the incidents that was talked about, that I remember hearing it in a podcast, actually, with the actor that plays Biff, was that there's a scene where George McFly gets a little physical with Biff, and he actually hit him. He actually physically hits him. (laughs) And, you know, he got a little pissed at the fact that he was hit, and he had to, you know, kind of go talk to the director about it. It's like, look, this guy's really going a little overboard here. Uh, you know, again, Eric Stoltz was doing the method acting thing. So if he hits somebody, he's going to hit him. So things were a little difficult, not to say the least. So about halfway through shooting the film, there are like five, six weeks into it, and they start to edit the film together. And they're having a tough time because they're having all these issues with Stoltz. And once they start to see this film being put together in, you know, in the edit room, Zemeckis realizes this isn't working. 
The chemistry is not working. Stoltz just doesn't fit. His acting is not meshing with this particular film, with everybody else's acting also. It's like they're making two different movies. So they approach Spielberg and they're like, listen, we're in a bind. We got to do something. This isn't working. So the suggestion that Spielberg gives them is, all right, here's what you do. Go find out if Michael J. Fox would be willing to jump in. You know, the television show recording, you know, they've recorded enough of the show already that maybe there's a way they can work a way around him, you know, being able to do both things. Figure out how much money it's going to cost to reshoot all these five or six weeks. In the meantime, while you're doing this, continue shooting. Don't stop. Because they were afraid that if they just stop shooting while they resolve the issue, Universal might just scrap the film. They might just stop giving them the money and everybody would just have to be fired. So they do it. They continue. They continue for at least another week. And from the book story, it tells us that, yeah, it's a very rough set because they're shooting things and some people can kind of tell that they're not getting all the coverage needed because they're purposely not bothering shooting a lot of the Eric Stolt, you know, shots, you know, head-on shots, because they're hoping to be able to substitute him with a different actor. So they figure out a way of uh, Michael J. Fox being able to shoot both things at the same time. So they have a yes for Michael J. Fox. The way they're going to do it is he'll shoot Family Ties during the day, and then at night he'll come over and shoot scenes, you know, for Back to the Future. The total amount of money that they were estimating that the reshoots would entail would be about $4 million, which is funny because that's almost the same amount of money they were asked to cut off the script (laughs) for the ending. So they approach Scheinberg once again, and they tell him, listen, we're in trouble. This movie needs help. This actor's not working out. This is, you know, kind of like reminding him the fact that he's the one that wanted that actor. And, you know, because Spielberg was there and he agreed, and because the, the you know, Zemeckis and Gale were, you know, they were all there to, to kind of pitch that. And they, the guy said, all right, let's do it. Let's switch it. So they switched it. So they notified Stoltz, you know, not too happy about it, obviously. But at the same time, you know, Zemeckis says he wasn't that. You know, he didn't have to have that bad of a reaction about it. He thought it was just another, he thought that maybe this was just another movie for him that he could kind of, he was kind of talked into doing himself. So maybe that's why he wasn't that maybe into it to begin with. So it wasn't that big of a deal, but it was huge. It was, you know, all of a sudden you're shifting gears. The cast and crew are scared because they don't know what's happening. So they get Michael J. Fox to come in and they start now shooting with Michael J. Fox. And what that entails is, reshooting a majority of the scenes that there were the head-on scenes of, you know, anything that you could see Eric Stoltz's face. There are a lot of scenes apparently in the film still where were shot earlier, where you might get the reaction shot of another actor reacting to Eric Stoltz, or you might even see a shoulder here or there of Eric Stoltz. You never know. But it wasn't like they had to start shooting everything from scratch. They just had to reshoot every scene that had the lead star on. So they started doing that. And they say, you know, as things progressed, things got a lot better. There was a different energy with Michael J. Fox. He was the bright actor. He brought in a different feel to it. And it kind of started working out and they started feeling good about it. A couple of uh, of interesting little facts. When they refitted Michael J. Fox for the costume, because obviously they have to refit him, you know, they did add the whole vest to the scene, you know, to tweak the little scenes a little bit. So it, adds, so it, it added an additional comedic uh, thing to it. And the problem they had was that they didn't have the sneakers, the same sneakers that would fit Edward Stoll. So Michael J. Fox had his own set of Nikes he brought with him. And uh, they said to him, you know, those look great. We'll use those. So they started using his sneakers. The problem was that when you shoot a film, you need to have extra sets for your stunt people, for just for reshoots, for they get dirty, whatever. And unfortunately, that particular brand that he had, they were called Nike Bruins, they were discontinued. So all of a sudden, they go scrambling looking for these things. They have to contact Nike. And the Nike team, they're like, yeah, we can't get those anymore. You know what? We'll just make them from scratch. So they made 
25 pairs for the film to be used, you know, by the stunt people and the additional, you know, shooting that was needed for no cost as a kind of like a deal that, okay, you know, keep us in, you know, we'll, we'll get a free product placement at least, and you can have them for free. It was a last minute edition. Now, there are a couple of people that you might recognize in the film that at the time were not that famous, let's say. Uh, one of them was Billy Zane, which, you know, nowadays, I mean, he's not... <laughs> No offense to Billy Zane, but he's really not that famous anymore. But, you know, he was in Titanic. He, he had a couple of good films under his belt. But, uh, you know, he did play one of the, one of, uh, Biff's thugs called Match. And the reason why they called him Match was because he always had a match stick, you know, he was chewing on it. You know, it's one of those typical 50s cliches. Another person that had a cameo that is more recognizable, I think, nowadays or, well, not nowadays. <laughs> Here we go again. I'm showing my age. But uh, Huey Lewis from Huey Lewis in the News had a scene in the movie where Marty's band is auditioning to play, you know, in the uh, in the high school prom, and the Huey Lewis kind of stops and goes, "Sorry, folks, you're just you're just too darn loud." You know, he kind of shuffles them off. Well, the way that that came about was that they contacted Huey Lewis. Because, you know, he was a big star at that point. And they, they said to him, you know, okay, well, uh, you know, in this film, Marty's a big fan of you. You know, Marty is, uh, your, is a big fan of your band. So we wanted to, we wanted you guys to come up with a song so we could have for the film. And at the time, Hugh Lewis wasn't that interested because he, he was like, you know, we never done a movie. We never wrote a song for a movie theme, you know, for a specific film. He says like, well, I, I don't know how if I can, how I can work the name of the movie into the song. And they were like, don't worry about it. We don't care about that. Just write a song. So he put something together, and the one that he apparently thought that they weren't going to pick, that's the one they picked, which is Power of Love. Later on, they asked him to do a second song, which was Back in Time, another great song. But Power of Love was gigantic. And ironically enough, when the movie came out, Power of Love had already been released slightly beforehand. So the song was already building enough steam, you know, on its own, that when the movie premiered, the song was already a number one hit. So you have this chemistry, which is exactly what a lot of people, you know, who make films and have certain movie songs attached to the film want to have. They want to have that cross marketing of you have a musical medium that's promoting your film and you have your film that's promoting your film. And at the same time, it just continued and continued to kind of profit from itself. And then, like I said, when you all of a sudden they added a second song for the the song back in time, which was the one that used the credit roll, another song that started all the way, you know, then started climbing up the charts. Now, the original release day of the movie was supposed to be May 24th, 1985, which was supposed to be Memorial Day. And this is before they had all the production problems. So once they realized that they need to recast and reshoot, they had to push the date to July 19th. Well, as they were getting close to that date, you know, as they were getting close to wrapping, you know, filming and they were in post-production phase, the studio requested, can we move it up a few weeks to July 3rd? Because this is the big July 4th weekend, which is a big deal, you know, for, for studios, you know, to be able to release certain films on that weekend. It's a big deal. So they had to adjust everything for that. They had to, post-production had to kind of get their act together and go a little faster, especially special effects, because that's one of the last things that was happening at that time was a lot of the special effects. Now, to promote the film, the poster that was used was uh, something done by Drew Struzan that we've talked about in previous episodes, you know, about our poster collection and that sort of thing. Similar to how he apparently has done this a number of times, you know, Struzan was recommended by Spielberg because he had worked with him before. And the way that he constructed the poster was, well, obviously, he gave them many different versions of how the poster could look like. 
And there's a lot of them. You can look them online. There's a ton of different variations on how the poster could have looked like. But the iconic final poster that we are most aware of, the one with Marty holding his glasses, stepping into the DeLorean, he had kind of have photographed himself using Marty's costume and then kind of replaced the head, obviously, you know, the Michael J. Fox head with his own head. But he's done this in the past. He will pose for his own posters. Now, the movie was a huge hit. Everybody wants a sequel at this point. So... Zemeckis and Gale, they're really not that crazy about doing a sequel at the, you know, at the point, but they are reminded again by Universal that, listen, we own the film, so a sequel is going to be made, and it's up to you guys whether or not you want to participate in it. So it was one of those, uh, <laughs> hint, hint, you know, twist my arm to do something. So they kind of said, all right, well, let's do it. You know, they're going to do it anyway. Let's might as well participate and see what we can do. So the first hint that we get as, viewers that there's a sequel coming comes in the form of the video release may 22nd 1986 the video version of back to the future is released and they add an additional i don't know if you you can't really call it a scene but an additional tag to the end of the movie and we talked about this a million times different releases of different films not a lot of them but Star Wars, for example, my God, the Star Wars changed throughout the years with the different theatrical releases and the, the addition of the New Hope title, you know, in front of Star Wars, Chapter 4, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, at the end of Back to the Future, as the car shoots away into infinity, they put a little tag at the end with the logo, you know, the, the fonts and the look of Back to the Future that says, to be continued. And all of a sudden, there you go. Wait a minute. I guess that means officially they are going to make a sequel. They hadn't even announced it, but it is. It's there, ready to go. The movie, like I said earlier, was a hit. It was the top grossing movie of the year. They got Oscar nominations for Huey Lewis's Power Love song. They got nominations for screenplay, and they got nominations for sound effects editing, which sound effects editing won. So, you know, it was kind of a big deal. This little movie was a hit, which is the most important thing. And that's what gives it, you know, all this extra attention. Now, Zemeckis' next project was Who Framed Roger Rabbit? So even though he is going to be involved, he is going to direct the sequel. He can't spend time writing it. So he gives the writing, the screenplay part to Gail to kind of try to start doing that on his own. So while Zemeckis is working on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Gail is working on the script for the sequel. Now, the sequel went through a lot of changes also, to the point where the movie at one point was going to travel back in time to 1967, as compared to how we know it now of a combination of 1955, 1985, and 2015. And at a certain point, the movie started to kind of grow. The script grew and grew to a point where they were going to travel to the 1800s. So it's like, wow, they were really going to be all over the place. So when Zemeckis kind of came back. He tried to kind of rein in, in, you know, the screenplay a little bit because it was, it was growing too big and they didn't know what to do. Now, what's important about this is that we know that the film was going to involve a lot of scenes of actors playing themselves with themselves as younger versions of themselves. And this is where the Who Framed Roger Rabbit technology that Zemeckis started using came in very handy. During Who Framed Roger Rabbits, there's a lot of scenes, and this is something that we had never seen before, and it's a totally, you know, game-changing type of field in special effects, where you can have animated characters interacting with real-life characters, but now you can have this motion-controlled, computer-controlled technology where the animated character now can move around 
the real life character and vice versa. Because back then, up to that point, most of the animation that we have seen that interacts with humans is flat. They cannot do any kind of three-dimensional, and I'm not talking 3D glasses technology. I'm talking about CGI three-dimensional movement. Now they were able to do that with special cameras. So Ken Ralston, who's a giant in the field of special effects back in ILM, and I met him uh, once uh, in a convention, and, you know, back when he was coming off of Return of the Jedi, and he was coming off of Cocoon, and he was coming off of uh, Star Trek II. You know, by this time, they're really heavy, heavy into CGI technology, kind of blending with the traditional non-CGI technology. So he starts to kind of think about it with Zemeckis about, you know, we have to prep these cameras that we're using for Roger Rabbit to try to do something different now. And that is trying to do this motion control technology, but instead of applying it to animated characters, applying it to humans. And we do get to see a lot of this in future work from Zemeckis, especially with Forrest Gump. So Michael J. Fox says, yes, they figure out they're going to do day, (laughs) as I mentioned earlier, family ties, and night, they're going to do Back to the Future 2. The challenge is that now ILM has to create this new software, you know, to be able to handle, you know, the human characters interacting with themselves. And technician by the name of Bill Trondeau is the guy who assembles the software that will interact with the motion control cameras to be able to do this. And internally, they started calling it the Tondreau effect, I guess, whenever they had to do this interaction of the same people. Now, one of the stumbling blocks they had in the beginning of this whole thing was that Crispin Glover, you know, he was demanding apparently too much money. And because they already had so many problems with him in the first place, to kind of keep him under control and to kind of have him behave himself, the fact that he all of a sudden is demanding more money, you know, on behalf of his agent gets to the point where they cannot accommodate his demands and they give him the option, okay, this is it. This is what we can give you. You're in or you're out. So he decided he was out. So now at this point, they have to recast the actor. They eventually ended up using a a lookalike in a way, like an actor that could kind of come off like him. But what they did is they reduced his role considerably so that he's not on camera that much. And they worked out a, a gag where he's upside down because he's recovering from back surgery or something, some back problems. And it's the future, so he's kind of hovering in an upside down device. So it's kind of hard to tell who he is. He kind of looks like him, but upside down, you can kind of it helps to hide him. So that's something they ended up doing. Now, the estimated budget for the sequel was going to be $60 million. Universal said, no way, we're not spending that kind of money. And they wanted the film to be ready by the summer of 1989. So what uh, Zemeckis and Gale came back and said, okay, here's what we have for you. Because this script is so big, and because we already signed Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd to two sequels, you know, they do that sometimes. Even though they might not necessarily be ready to shoot two sequels, they might not necessarily end up shooting two sequels, but they do sign them for that just in case. They said, here's what we can do. We'll give you two movies for $70 million if we shoot them back to back. And this was one of the times where I first heard of, I don't know if they, I mean, I'm pretty sure in the the 50s, you know, the golden age of Hollywood, they might've shot films, you know, pretty consistently. But in modern times, they weren't really doing that too often. As far as I could tell, this was a big deal. Oh my God, they're going to shoot them back to back? How do you do that? But they went for it because they were going to get two movies <laughs> slightly for the price of one. So what they did is they changed the premiere dates to fall of 89 would have been, was going to be Back to the Future 2 and summer of 90 was going to be Back to the Future 3. And this way they could kind of split that story. Remember, we were at a point where the story was going to jump from 55 to 67 and it was going to go to 
2015, it was going to 1985. Well, at this point, the script, they revised it some more and they got rid of the whole 1967 part because it was way too all over the place and they were able to spread it out. So you basically have a lot of future stuff happening in the second and Western going back to the 1800s in the third. Interesting uh, little tidbits in the future cafe when Marty's in the future and he's visiting all these different bizarre future things. Elijah Wood has a cameo, if you will. I mean, at the time, he was just a bit actor. He was a kid, as a small kid in the cafe. So that's kind of interesting. The hoverboard technology. The hoverboard technology you have in the future, These the equivalent of the skateboards, they're hoverboards. It's cute. It's interesting. And it's futuristic. And it, you have all these gags that have to do it. But I remember at the time, part of the, I guess, I don't know if you call it the marketing of the film or the mystique of the film was that they had these hoverboard scenes where you can see the people riding hoverboards and they were kind of hinting wink wink that no this is a special technology we can't really talk about it and it was a while everybody understood it wasn't real they were also trying to keep the technology kind of quiet at the time maybe it was because of the secrecy of the film they didn't want to give it away until the film was released but they were keeping it super hush hush that you know this was a new ILM related technology that was going to revolutionize, I guess, the uh, the industry. And it's, in a way, it's true. This is the late 80s. This is when CGI is kind of starting to lose its mind. CGI is exploding everywhere. You have, and I talked about this before, CGI technology. Films like Jurassic Park, The Abyss, where they're doing these advancements that are blowing people away. Now, today we know, and a little bit after the movie was came out, we started to understand that the advancement was the ability to digitally being able to remove certain things from the screen. So the wires that were used to kind of prop these hoverboards, they were able to digitally remove the wires. Later on in movies like Terminator 2, we got a real good look at how there was so much wire work done with the motorcycles jumping off of, you know, cliffs and stuff like that. And then you would just re- go there and remove the wires. So it's like, wow, that's amazing. Well, that's where it kind of started, but they were trying to keep it quiet back then. Even Nike came back for the second film, you know, a relationship was formed and they were able to introduce these new futuristic Nikes that kind of laced themselves up. And that was a cute little gag that they had. Uh, obviously, they weren't real. They had people, you know, under the stage kind of pulling on the <laughs> laces, you know, to, to kind of tighten themselves up. Same thing with the jacket Marty's wearing. He has a, a jacket that adjusts itself. Well, it was a similar gag where people are underneath and they're pulling on certain wires to make the jacket kind of shrink. Now, for the posters of these films, once again, Struzan came back and he did, again, you know, the typical poses for the characters. Uh, but this time he was able to use the actual actors to pose for him. So he didn't have to, you know, get into costumes. And they, and for the third one, he even added Mary Steenburgen, you know, the, the romantic lead for Doc Brown. She was even in that poster. So you have them all kind of following the same kind of poster, which is kind of cool. And yeah, number three was heavy, heavy in the Western. Number two was heavy, heavy into the future. I personally, I, you know, I like the first one best. I like the second one second best and the third one third best. I know people that kind of mix and match. I know a lot of people that like the third one better. But it is interesting also that with the second one, there was a lot of things having to do with what the future would look like. There's a scene where, and as I mentioned in the, uh, in the book, uh, that poster, that freebie poster, there's a scene where Michael J. Fox, Marty, approaches a movie theater and there's a holographic shark coming at him that kind of 
it's going to take a bite out of him. And one of the cute things about it was that it said on the marquee, it says directed by Max Spielberg. And I think Max might be one of his sons or something like that. So it's kind of cute that he's kind of trying to tie it in, you know, as an homage to Spielberg, obviously. But there are so many cute little futuristic things all over the place that are hidden that are nice for people to um, be able to discover. And, you know, the films came and went. They were pretty successful, not as big as the first one, obviously, but they inspired other things that happened right afterwards. For example, Universal Studios wanted a ride having to do with this. So they made both one for California and one for Orlando, you know, for both their studios, theme parks. They did bring back Doc Brown to shoot some of the, you know, the little films that come on before the ride and the ride is heavy heavy you know it's a, i think it was a combination of a flight simulator and it might have been i'm not sure if it was 3d or not but I, it was definitely a flight simulator type of ride and it was also on a huge huge screen they brought in douglas trumbull the special effects genius from like uh, blade runner and uh, close encounters to do some of his work and you know he's been doing a lot of stuff like that uh, you know for a long time you know trying to do flight simulators and that kind of thing theme rides so he was involved in that for a while and not until recently a couple of years ago they finally <laughs> uh, got rid of the back to the future ride which i remember i, I went on it a couple of times it was an excellent ride it was a fun you know violent kind of ride you know it was a very and i think that's one of the issues they had at first it was because of the imax technology of you know the big giant projectors they had to kind of figure out a way of people not making people uh, nauseous from the movement that was happening, the, the perceived movement with the real movement of the car that you were in. And then I believe the other big Back to the Future related product that was out there was a cartoon. They did an animated series, only lasted two seasons, apparently wasn't very successful, but they did manage to get, uh, again, Christopher Lloyd was able to participate. And in the uh, theme ride, the guy that plays Biff, he was also able to participate. So uh, at least they got some of these actors to com you know, continue with it. Into the present, you know, the, one of the reasons why this book was published was because we were approaching 2015, which was the year of the future time of Back to the Future. And a lot of products did kind of return, including this book that I just read. There was, uh, I remember even before that, and I think it was around 2011, Nike put out a, a an actual sneaker that looked like Marty's sneaker. They did, it was a, you know, like a commemorative type of thing. Only 1,500 pairs, I think, were uh, put out there. And in 2014, and even a few years ago, even before, even a little after that, there were some actual people that built versions of the hoverboard, actual versions of this thing that could actually, through magnets, I believe, hover over a surface. And they did, you know, they even got a professional skateboarder to kind of try it out. And, you know, they built it. It exists. It's, it's cumbersome and it's bulky, but it does perform that. It's, it's really amazing. And more recently, I also uh, watched Again, another uh, thing that was put out maybe about two, three years ago, a documentary called Back in Time, which is in Netflix. You can probably find it there now that kind of goes through the history of how the film was made. Uh, but it also dips into the fan community and all the fan related events and products that are out there and the people that collect the cars and all that kind of stuff, the actual DeLoreans. So it's an interesting documentary. It's kind of okay. I, I enjoyed mainly the, the actual making of the movie part of the, 
documentary uh, as opposed to not so much the fan side, you know, that, that other side of the movie. But it's okay. You know, it's at least it's something to, to be able to look at. And they did re-release the films, obviously, you know, Blu-ray versions with all these extras. But what's cool about it is that in this documentary, and I guess it might have came from the more recent DVD releases of Back to the Future was that they do have some of the behind the scenes shots of Eric Stoltz's footage. Unfortunately, it's not enough for you to be able to pass judgment on his performance, but it's like little bits and clips that are there that you can kind of say, oh, wow, there actually is, you know, footage. And and even Bob Gale talks about, hey, maybe one day we'll release all that footage as an extra somewhere. So it does have some really cool interviews, um, but, you know, it's out there for you guys to enjoy. So, this kind of wraps up our look back at Back to the Future. Oh, there's another weird pun I'm trying to put together. So don't forget to, uh, you know, bring out this movie. You know, it's a three-parter. It's great for the family, and it's a lot of fun. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. The six million dollar man's boss, it's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each one to display, one to open, and one just in case. On today's collectible segment, I want to talk about V. For visitors, if you guys remember that show back in the 80s, the alien lizard creatures uh, disguised as friendly ambassadors from another world. I've done a whole show about it in the past in terms of, you know, the miniseries and then the television series. And I touched a little bit upon the marketing of it, you know, and some of that stuff. But the reason I'm returning for it today is that I had told a story, I believe, in the past, and I keep telling this story and it usually applies to star wars figures i usually talk about how i lost most of my star wars or all of my star wars ships play sets in between moves very long time ago but i did manage to keep the figures and alongside with that i also lost i remember a number of other things that were i believe in that giant toy chest of mine including my i believe indiana jones doll action figure you know it's like a foot the foot long one the original one and i also had a v figure now let me tell you a little bit about this v figure this is about a foot long figure it's a doll kind of design you know you have your 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 points of articulation which are pretty good you have knees you don't have elbows but you have arms and a head that swivels he's wearing the traditional v visitor's uniform, the space military uniform with the insignia and the belt buckle. <laughs> really, you know, cool. Again, it is a doll. It is something that, you know, any company in the 80s could have produced. It's this typical doll kind of design. You've seen Miko doll, you know, the large Miko dolls with the, you know, with the little costumes you put them on. And this isn't Miko, obviously, but it is something of that sort in terms of being your standard design for it. Now, what makes this doll really super cool is the fact that, number one, it comes with a laser gun that the show used. And again, we've talked about this in the past. The show had a really, really cool laser gun. And I think that's something we're going to be talking about in the future. We're going to have to talk about weapons because there are so many cool weapons and there's so many lame weapons out there as far as sci-fi or classic type of genre shows. And V had this great, great design 
which was a gun with practically a double handle. And as far as I know, they never really manufactured it, you know, they never mass produced it, you know, as a weapon for kids, a plague toy gun. There were some, I believe, you could mail away and you could paint them or you can assemble them and that sort of thing. But that always happens. You could still do that to this day. You can find places that will, you know, they'll manufacture, they'll cast, you know, the molds, you know, they'll have the molds and they'll cast it for you. But then you, unfortunately, are in charge of trying to put it together and everything like that. But this one comes with a gun that is in the proper proportions for the actual figure. And it's really, really cool. Again, if you watch the show, it was so cool because you could, a character could hold the gun two different ways. They could hold it as a gun or almost as a small machine gun, if you will, because it had that secondary handle in front of the trigger. So it was really, really neat. Now, what's also cool about this figure, <laughs> and I'm, I'm saving the best for last, is that, you know, you have the, the human looking face, you know, for the character which is okay, that's accept, you know, that's that's pretty much the way it worked. And he's wearing sunglasses, you know, the, the, the typical sunglasses, they have to wear these dark sunglasses. Now, the face is a kind of rubbery kind of face. It, it's a human face, obviously. But for whatever reason, something happened with this particular one that I have. Now, I got it on an eBay auction, and part of the problem, I guess, it must have some fading or some staining or something like that because the the pinky flesh looks slightly gray almost greenish but if this was any other figure that would be something bad <laughs> but for this figure that is something that is perfect because one of the best features of these toys that i remember i had and i'm holding right now is that the face is really a mask and if you pull the face off, the mask, which is kind of like a gigantic hat, it's got to slit down the back so you can easily remove it or not so easily remove it, you expose the lizard head, which is hiding inside. So not only does it have the lizard head, and the sculpt on the head is really, really great. Now, the size is not the best because you got to keep in mind, in order to fit the human face over the lizard head and to be able to somewhat comfortably remove it easily, you have to kind of change the proportions. You cannot make them exactly the same. So the lizard head is a little smaller than the proportions of the body, and the human head is a little larger than the proportions of the body. So neither one fits perfectly. I would go as far as to say that the lizard head probably fits the best. If they would have made it just a tiny bit bigger, it would have been perfect. Now, what's cool about the lizard head is that in the back you have this little slit in the back of the outfit where with a little lever and if you push the lever up the lizard head sticks out the lizard tongue which sticks out of its mouth and what you could do is if you're putting the human face on it the human mouth actually has a slit open so that you could actually trigger the lizard tongue through the human mouth which i believe at some point in the show it happened now i absolutely love this particular figure it came out in 1984 I don't remember exactly where I bought it originally. Like I said, this time around, I got it on eBay. It was an eBay purchase that I was chasing around for a long time. I saw one on sale at a flea market recently, and it was about, I think it was like $40 or $35. Or it was, it was kind of, and that is not an outrageous price. There are more expensive ones. Granted, if you want them boxed, you know, mint on card, it is going to cost more money, just like things usually do, you know, when you're dealing in that kind of, you know, price range. But I was looking for a loose one, and I had seen some loose ones in the past. Some of them were missing the gun. Most of them are missing the gun because the gun is one of the most 
important items and expensive items. They sell them individually for almost as much money as, you know, these individual dolls cost. This one came with everything. I think I have everything that belongs in this except the box, which I don't really care about the box. And I got it, I think, for maybe $25, which is a great price. Now, granted, maybe it was cheaper than average because of, like I said, the slight discoloration on the on the human face mold, which I said it's perfectly fine by me. It actually helps, you know, in the description of the character. And I did have this. I remember I had it. It was one of the few official toys, I think, that had come out. There wasn't too much crazy marketing, I remember. I used to go to conventions, and uh, it is possible that I maybe picked it up at a convention. Back then, I would buy, I remember, the only V-related things I could find were novels. They had these spin-off novels, and they also had patches, I believe. They had actual patches. I don't know how official they were, but they were pretty close, so uh, those were the only things. And there might have been some trading cards in the, in the mix somewhere there. One hint at the possibilities of where this line could have gone if they would have continued, which they couldn't because the show was canceled pretty quickly, is in the line of three and three quarter inch, which is the more traditional toy line that exists back then and even to a certain extent now. If allowed to continue, they would have put out, and this is all coming from an LJN, that's the toy manufacturer, catalog for the following years, you know, what's coming soon, you know, display pages. There's a two-page display of a three and three-quarter inch line that includes two, let's say, good guy action figures, one of them most likely being uh, Mike Donovan, the, the, you know, the lead star, Mark Singer's character, and a kind of like a car, like a Trans Amish looking car, looks like a little bit... <laughs> of a bastardized Smokey and the Bandit type of car. You know, it's all blue. I don't honestly remember if the show ever had anything resembling that. But they also had two figures for the visitors themselves. They had a, I guess, a generic soldier, three and three quarter, and Diana, the big baddie of the show. And, uh, you know, with their own accessories, with their own guns, they look really good. They have, you know, it's the typical red uniform, but it's more of the, not so much the the friendly visitor red uniform, but more of the soldier type of uniform, which is basically the similar to what the doll has. But it, they what they do is they put this um, kind of like an apron-y type of cover on top of the of the red, you know, this, this V-ish shaped black cover on the top. And the generic soldier one, or the generic creature one, let's say, uh, which should have, I believe, some sort of a head removal feature similar to the large doll, does have the helmet, that big black helmet that the their soldier types wear. And you also see what would have also been two vehicles, one of them being the standard small fighter, a lot smaller than normal, you know, because of the size uh, ratio, and a Jeep, a white Jeep, you know, both of these vehicles with the typical V emblem on the, you know, on the sides and on the front. And what's really interesting is that if you really, really look hard in the in the bottom of the page, they also show you pictures of what the packaging would have looked like on these two vehicles and the generic figure, the generic V soldier figure. But that never came about because, as I mentioned earlier, the show was canceled and so were any, you know, dreams of expanding the toy line. But this is, again, 
it's a silly toy. It's not anything that most people really care about. But for me, it's one of my, I don't want to call them holy grails because holy grails is something you'd be chasing all your life. Uh, we need a new definition for them. But these are one of my reconstituted or refound collectibles. You know, I'm still looking for some other stuff that I lost in that original move. But this one definitely is scoring points for the return <laughs> of my old vintage toys. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. Worst crossover ever. Oh, by the hammer of Thor! Well, what brings you guys here? We're looking for a recommendation about comic books. Oh, well, I recommend you don't open a store and sell them. My spidey sense is tingling. Today we're going to look at a comic book adaptation of Star Wars once again, believe it or not. There are more. You know, just when I thought that Marvel and Dark Horse had the market cornered <laughs> in the uh, Star Wars adaptation department, no, with Disney's purchase of Star Wars, or Lucasfilm specifically, a couple of years ago, we kind of had a feeling they might be kind of expanding into these areas, and obviously, you know, all of the... Uh, Editorial decisions now get filtered through Disney, as far as Marvel is concerned, with Star Wars lines. But my focus, as you guys probably know by now, when it comes to comic books, is more in the movie adaptation side. I really enjoy the movie adaptations much more. So with Star Wars, as I've done shows in the past, having to do, like I said, with Marvel and Dark Horse, which they've each kind of taken, they each had their own turn back and forth, you know, doing their own versions. And it, it seems that every time this franchise changes hands, they kind of redo or republish their movie adaptations, more or less. I own a few original comics. I think I might have most of them by now of the Star Wars original trilogy, in its many incarnations, and then the supplemental ones they put out later, you know, where you have them all combined into one booklet kind of thing, kind of, you know, still very soft cover, you know, comic bookish. And then I started buying the the Marvel, I don't know if you want to call them anniversary editions or whatever, they're basically hardcovers. So they take an entire movie, slap a hardcover on it, you know, recolor it. And that's one of the things that I really enjoy is the fact that with most of these, they use the original art, but then they recolor it because... There's so much more advances in coloring. <laughs> I don't know if you can call them technical advances, but just the quality of the product that you get. When you compare the old comic book, the original comic book, now granted, there's a lot of history behind that comic book, that original shaking Star Wars comic set, you know, for the movie adaptation, and then the, the history having to do with how little material he had to go on. So he's kind of making crap up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he might have a little picture here or there, but not much reference material. So a lot of it, you know, and the funny thing is that, you know, if you look at YouTube and you find Howard Chaikin interviews, and there's a lot of them, and he is not a big fan of the Star Wars. Now, let's, let's, let's preface this with the guy is a curmudgeon. He is a very... <laughs> angry individual and he's got many opinions on many many things and he has no qualms about putting his feelings out there so on top of having that kind of a personality to begin with he is very very clear like i said before that, that he had very little to go on and star wars is not especially those 
movie adaptation issues is something that he, he always says he wishes he could do them all over again because he got it you know he got he, he he's not happy with his work he was never he's never been happy but that is part of the charm of it now it, it's in my opinion it's not so much in how different it looks and oh this is horrible because it looks different oh this is bad because it looks different no, it's almost like a like an anthropological discovery. It's almost it's historic. It's here's what happened. It's a it's a textbook example of here's what happens when you are given, you know, very little details and asked to come up with a comic book. You know, that's what you get. And it's really cool, you know, because the little things that he was given, he tries to turn them into something else. But yeah, yeah, those original art designs remain through the majority of all of these different incarnations of Star Wars as far as it being published as the original, you know, the original one. Now, I know they made a special issue. It might have been Dark Horse when they did the special edition. And that's when they completely redrew the comic with different artists. And I actually loved it. I loved it. I loved it. It looked great. The art was different. You know, the colors were, they were so vibrant and sharp. And, you know, I really enjoy that. Just as much as I enjoyed the future versions of the original, where all they did is just recolor them. Recolor them also, you know, breathes new life into these things. And every now and then they do it again. And like I said, I do have those issues uh, in my collection. And we really hadn't seen any new ones in a while. There are Japanese versions of Star Wars, and I believe we might have touched upon those, of the original trilogy, which is completely done in an anime style. I think some of them might be even black and white, if I remember correctly. A completely different market, completely different feel, nothing like the Marvel stuff. And that's pretty much all we've had. Now, for the foreign versions, you know, the, the not, not the foreign translated ones, but the foreign made ones, yes, there might be a couple more out there to search. They're a little difficult to find, but they're out there if you, that's your kind of thing. <clears throat> but lately, we hadn't gotten anything new, you know, in a way, uh, of Star Wars until the Disney purchase. Now, once the Disney purchase took place, one of the biggest criticisms or one of the biggest fears by fans and I guess just regular people, I guess, is that what will Disney do with the franchise? What will they do? How much influence will they have? Will they try to Disneyfy the franchise? And most of us, you know, had the same fear, but we had the Marvel franchise to deal with and all the Avenger films and all those properties, all those films, the superhero line of stuff that Disney has been kind of overseeing and letting them go at their own pace, more or less. And it's been pretty successful and it's been pretty acceptable, you know, by the fans. I rarely hear anybody say, oh, this, uh, you know, the Avengers is too Disney. You know, it's too this or too that. Yeah, not, not really. I don't really hear that kind of tone with when you criticize one of these films. So as time went by, you know, we were kind of having the same issue. And so far, so good. As far as I'm concerned, Star Wars has been allowed to kind of function on its own. And now with the comics, you know, and granted, I'm not following the individual comics, you know, their line of Star Wars comics, I know, you know, they relaunched the whole comic line, and there's a Darth Vader line, and a Leia line, you know, all these different lines, a Poe Dameron line, and yeah, they've gone in different directions, and I get it, okay, fine, you're rebranding yourself, I get it, that's fine, I'm not following those that much, you know, if there's one that's interesting, I might grab here or there, or, you know, a one-off, one or one-shot, or something like that, yeah, okay, fine, that's no big deal, but whenever I see something 
that hints at, hey, they, we're going to retell the original story. Ooh, that's interesting. Or we're going to tell the original story from a different point of view. Ooh, that's interesting. You know, I go for those things. So I think it was last year, they put out a series of original trilogy books, which had the original trilogy in one book and the prequel trilogy in another book. And there were retellings of the original films. And even more recently, I just picked up The Force Awakens as its own book. It's its own little book. It's almost a comic book size book, the way that it's printed. It's a little shorter than a comic book. It's got a soft cover, you know, a little, little, little harder than paper soft cover, which is neat. And it's all about The Force Awakens. The person credited for the adaptation is Alessandro Ferrari. And listed under character studies is Igor Chimiso. And then you also have a layout person, Simone Bonfantino, for Force Awakens. Now, because I'm not a big comic book person, I'm going to assume that the character studies and the layout might be the artist's character studies. Most likely layout, maybe it's the positioning. I don't know. <laughs> they do have traditional titles, you know, along the way, you know, cleanup, ink, paint, paint, cover, you know, they, they, they do different things with this. But. What's important about this is that it's something that I noticed with the earlier, you know, the previous year's release of this kind of Disney adaptation. And actually, the even though it's Disney, it goes under the IDW brand, you know, of comics, is that it is a different approach. It is a different look. The easiest way to describe it is that it is Disneyfied. Now, I'm not going to say Disneyfied as a bad thing. I'm not saying that they're changing the story, they're changing this, they're changing that. It's also, I could have sworn I saw it on Amazon or somewhere described as a junior comic book. In other words, it's aimed at a younger audience, maybe. That's possible. You could say that. Part of it has to do with the look of the characters. There is definitely, definitely, definitely <laughs> a very hard attempt at making the characters look more like traditional Disney characters. The girls, and obviously in Star Wars, you're painfully dealing with Leia, she looks like a Disney princess. You know, they do have that look, that Disney look. The males, especially the good guys, let's say Luke, Han, especially Luke, he looks much younger than he is. He's got these big eyes. Very childish, very marketable, <laughs> if you will. You know, you still have your bad guys that are mean looking and, you know, Obi-Wan is old and Han has kind of like a roguish look to him, you know, but it is a different style. And in my opinion, that's fine. You know, it doesn't take away from what's already out there. This just gives you another version, another view of how to read the story in a comic book form. Now, one of the things I noticed is that that's a little strange is the fact that, you know, the whole comic book is done by, you know, these artists that I mentioned before, but the cover is done by someone else, which I understand it in a way because I know traditionally a lot of times comic books are, they're done that way. The, they allowed another artist to do the cover while somebody else is doing the stuff inside. So it's like, okay, I get that. But it just seemed a little weird that, you know, when you're pushing a product and the thing that makes this product different is the fact that it's the Disney version, if you will. I mean, I, I'm sure they don't want to call it the Disney version. They're calling it just as another, it's, it's listed as a graphic novel adaptation. Oh, okay. And I guess it's supposed to be for, you know, in a store, you'll find it sitting there on the rack as opposed to finding the older ones that are not there. 
and people will, I guess, want to sell a new version of something as opposed to an old version of something. Okay, maybe that's what they are doing. I don't know if by printing it without the Marvel logo on it gives Disney more of the profit as opposed to if, if they're reprinting the old Marvel one. I guess Marvel might get a bigger slice of the pie. I don't know. But, you know, you remember Marvel is still owned by Disney. So, I don't know. I, I can't figure out the legalese behind, you know, the reasoning of why. But anyway, it is really good as far as I'm concerned. It You know, it follows the story. It has the same pitfalls that most comic book adaptations have is that they cannot cover every scene. Certain things are going to be missing from this. So, you know, scenes are shortened funny little things especially with star wars you know we breathe and live star wars so we know every little aspect of it and you're like well what happened to the this scene and what happened to that scene and what happened to this and what happened to that so you know they're very good one of the best things i i love about them is the fact that they seem to combine two different styles and again i'm not a comic book person i don't know what modern comic books i don't even know if disney has a certain aesthetic that they try to do with their comics but what i'm noticing a lot on these is that while the characters are very disnified again in their facial features in their the way they're drawn and the way they move action wise their backgrounds are super super realistic especially when i was reading the um, new hope the original star wars version one there was such a combination of you know this disnified character behind of i mean at times it almost looks like pictures you know that they're they're uh, but they're not obviously they're not but they're just so well drawn they're fantastic they do come up with these great angles in other words they don't just take a snapshot of the film and redraw it basically no they don't do that there are certain scenes where you know they're taking these high angle views of a scene that you've never seen before and they look really cool now what's interesting that i noticed is that the version of the movie they're telling sometimes involves original trilogy you know i guess you could call it the unaltered edition and sometimes you can call the special edition edition because there are certain scenes that are showing up that you're like oh wait a minute they show up here they don't show up there for example in star wars in the original film that version of the comic you know for this particular adaptation that i'm talking about doesn't seem to include any special edition additions you don't see any additional scenes, additional characters, additional creatures, additional anything. You know, for the hell of it, I was just, I kept looking at it. I'm like, I don't, I can't find any. But then when I was reading the Empire Strikes Back story, which is the next one on the book, you do see the Wampa in the cave eating, you know, getting up, coming after Luke. Very, very much like you do see him, you know, in the special edition. And then for Return of the Jedi, you do get to see the Sarlacc's mouth coming out of the pit. And then at the end, you do see the Force ghosts, you know, the young Anakin as opposed to the old Anakin. So it looks like at least for Jedi, they decided to, you know, give you some of the special edition version of it. So it's a little odd how they decide which to use and which not to use. They, there is no real consistency as far as I can tell, which is weird because I know that as far as Lucas goes or Lucasfilm, well, especially Lucas, once the special edition came out, that's how he wanted that presented in future versions. So 
Whenever a clip would be shown of a film, they would show the special edition clip. Whenever Lucasfilm showed any clip of anything as a, as a demo or as an example of something, they would always revert to the special editions. It's almost like they don't want the originals out there, which they don't really, they don't. So it seemed kind of odd that on a comic book, they would decide to do one or the other, but maybe they're, you know, that was a mandate from Lucas that no longer applies anymore. People can go one way or the other even though I'm sure they're never going to release the original versions the way people wanted them to release. Now, these books, like I said, they're great. They're wonderful in terms of being able to read the story. The script, it is sometimes word by word, the script. There's very little deviations I've noticed in the lines that are given. There is absolutely zero, zero, zero artistic interpretations of scenes or things that happen you know sometimes you get comics where they add a couple of little scenes here or there based on the artist or maybe based on the original script or based on whatever here no in these ones they go by the film they don't give you anything more anything less and like i mentioned earlier there are little discrepancies here or there you know you have the funniest thing i noticed was that uh, at the medal ceremony in uh, new hope you see luke with a medal han doesn't have a medal <laughs> <laughs> so all of a sudden, not only poor Chewbacca doesn't get a medal, in this version, Han doesn't get a medal either. So it's, I mean, again, there's silly little differences. I could pick it apart, you know, to shreds, you know, because of the differences. And I don't want to spend too much time saying, well, in page number four, Luke is wearing his thing on his right shoulder as opposed to his left shoulder. <laughs> there are plenty of technical mistakes, if you will, or chronological continuity errors that I picked out, but I'm not going to get into that. Um, this is, again, this is a great way to get it started. I have, like I said, the, the original trilogy, I have the prequel trilogy, and I think in December they're going to put out Rogue One in the same version. And apparently that is the plan, because it does say in one of the other ones, in one of the hardcover ones, it says, coming soon, you know, other original, you know, other Star Wars adaptations coming soon. But I guess instead of putting them together in a book, you know, a big book, you're going to have to just give them to us a little bit at a time. And I'm sure at some point they'll probably, you know, put them all in one big book, you know, big fat book for us to purchase at some point. So that's kind of cool. And I enjoy it. Like I said, I like it. I like the way that they uh, they redo these things. Force Awakens, for example, again, one of these continuity things I, I, I promise not to talk about, but I, I just want to mention one thing. The whole Ranthar thing, you know, running rampant through the through Han's ship, that whole sequence was eliminated. <laughs> it's like, wow, how do you decide to eliminate that whole sequence? And I do understand, with comics, sometimes action is difficult. Talking is easy because talking you write, but action, you have to spend so much real estate, you know, you know, on your page to describe a lot of action. And yeah, that is a big action sequence that they decided to kind of cut. Now, these individual books that I talked about are they're pretty cheap. I mean, they're, I think it was seven bucks uh, for Force Awakens. So, yeah, it's kind of worth it. You know, it's a little, you know, the fact that you're getting the whole movie, it's it's worth about seven bucks. Normally, something like that. If I remember right, the individual comics, they might have been maybe four, five, six of them. You know, three bucks a pop, more. You know, it, they add up. And then when you put out the hardcover version, that's even more expensive. I think those are maybe $12 or something like that, or $15. So it is a, it is kind of cheap when you think about it, what you're getting for those seven bucks. It's not bad at all. So overall, I think this is a great thing to get if you're into movie adaptations. The Disneyfied version, if you will. I don't see the negative connotation of a Disney version, a Disneyfied version of these characters. If it is meant to be 
for a younger audience, it's possible too, the way that I believe it was described. Maybe this is the way you get younger kids into comics because I guess younger kids are not getting into comics the way that people my age used to get into comics. I guess these days, the comic book market, it seems to be hitting kids that are older. You have to be in the genre already to kind of regress back to comic book kind of days. So this is a way of, of kind of introducing younger kids. I wouldn't be surprised if this is on the, you know, the young adult section of the, you know, the bookstores and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, you, you figured, yeah, maybe a kid reads this and likes it and then realizes, wait a minute, there's a Marvel version. Okay, let's go look at the Marvel version. Oh, this is a little different and blah, blah, blah. You know, that, Maybe that's what they're going for. I don't know. For me, it works because it falls under my focus collecting of movie adaptations. And when you throw Star Wars in the mix, you can't go wrong. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I know I did, you know, going back to the future, being able to cover that movie in a from a different perspective instead of hitting the movie head on like we do a lot of times with our films. This time we went the book route, the making of book route. So that was kind of cool. And you guys uh, know by now, you know, my ongoing, you know, rebuilding of my toy collection and how happy I am with my V, uh, you know, visitors figure, you know, my, my lizard guy. <laughs> <laughs> I finally was able to get. And I hope you guys found the Star Wars comic book adaptation helpful. You know, if you're into uh, movie adaptations and that sort of thing. How this new Disney version of it is not exactly the horrific thing that many of us <laughs> feared coming out of Disney. But an actually good, alternative, different kind of movie adaptation of the same theme. So on behalf of everyone here, thank you for listening. And we'll see you soon here at GeekFest France. Bye-bye, everybody. Last year, the visitors arrived, and to Robin, one of them was very special. Now the truth is out. The visitors are not our friends. They are not like us. But Robin found out too late and will soon give birth to a visitor's child. It all happens May 6th when the world fights back. Don't miss the incredible all-new epic where everything you can imagine happens. The the final battle on NBC. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2017. <laughs>